0: It is 7.45. My name is Suzy Jones. In this morning for Denny Long, and we are happy to have with us on the news line, Jack Barrow. Jack, good morning. Good morning, Susie. How are you this Friday? I'm day? wonderful filling in for Denny. It's kind of like riding a bike, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Once you learn, you never forget. You turn that mic on and just jump right in. Amen. Both Amen. feet. Amen. So what are you up to these days? What well, should we talk about? today I thought we might talk about... One of America's newest and most interesting wine areas, Oregon. Oregon, you know in the 70s there we had about 30 acres of wine uh, vines planted in the whole state. And I think in 74 there were four wineries in all of Oregon. Now that isn't that long ago. and today there's over 35,000 acres of vineyards planted in Oregon, and over 720 different wineries. So that's really growth in in an area, and there has good reason for it. You know, uh, Oregon has become the fourth largest viticultural area in all the states in the United States. California is, of course, by far number one. Washington State is a strong two, and uh, New York and Oregon are Battling it out for the third place. Uh, at present, New York is just a little got a little more vines under cultivation than Oregon does, but they're coming very close. And there has to be a reason for this. Uh, you know, Oregon's history—they never had any commercial wineries there. But even from the days of the Oregon Trail, people planted grapevines up there. And but you know, and they had a commercial winery prior to Prohibition. One. And, of course, in Prohibition, wiped out all the wineries all over the whole country. Uh, And Oregon has made a remarkable comeback. And the best thing they've done in Oregon is they cultivate one of the most difficult-to-grow grapes in the entire world, and that's Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is a wonderful grape that makes fabulous wine. But unfortunately, it's very difficult to grow. You need the right climactic conditions. Uh, The skins are kind of thin compared to Cabernet. Cabernet, Zinfandel, those are workhorse varietals. Pinot Noir is much more delicate and difficult to grow. Well, it found its home certainly in Oregon, particularly in the Willamette Valley. Uh, It is just amazing to me the top quality of Pinot Noir, they get there. As a matter of fact, in the Wilmette Valley for now 30 some years, they have an international Pinot Noir festival. And people come from all over the world South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Germany, Italy uh, where they're trying to grow Pinot Noir and uh, to compare notes, etc. And actually, uh, that area, McMinnville, in the Willamette Valley, has become world headquarters for Pinot Noir. And to show you the interesting part about it, we talked about Malbec a couple of weeks ago and its base is Cahors in France and how there's some Argentine coming into France, into Cahors, to regrow Malbec, even though Malbec started there. Well, the same thing has happened in Oregon with Pinot Noir. One of the first ones there uh, was a revolutionary thing, and I think it was about 87. Domaine Drouin, Drouin is a very old, noble house in the heart of Burgundy, well known for their Pinot Noirs for uh, hundreds of years. They went out to Oregon and bought some land, again, in the Willamette Valley, and started Domaine Drouin. Well, this really put the wine world on its ear. Here was the a French house, incredibly well-known for their fabulous Pinot Noir, had gone to Oregon, purchased some land, and was building a winery there. Well, I mean, that was just amazing. Of course, today that's not so amazing. There's about eight different French operations who have come over uh, to Oregon to begin to grow Pinot Noir. And as I say, it's a very, very hard grape uh, to grow. But it's one of those rewarding type of grapes that uh, its complexity is, is so remarkable, in my opinion. There's n- nothing better than a good glass of Pinot Noir. I remember going to those early Pinot Noir uh, seminars that they started in the Willamette Valley. They have, uh, and now they even have something called Camp Pinot, where you go and you stay there like going to camp for a week and all you could do is go to lectures about Pinot Noir and learn the complexities, etc. And I'm always struck by the international texture of the student body at that Camp Pinot. I mean, they come from everywhere imaginable in the wine world to learn more about Pinot Noir, and they come to the Fountainhead in Oregon. And that's sort of interesting, because heretofore, the real Fountainhead, of course, is Burgundy, the land of the birth of the grape varietal Pinot Noir. And, you know, it was so important to Burgundy's eco- uh, economic situation that the Dukes of Burgundy in the 13th century made proclamations about Pinot Noir and banned other grape types, et cetera. So it, it has been around for a very, very long time. And this new Pinot Noir uh, area, I mean, 50 years, we're talking 1,000 years in uh, Burgundy, and here it's less than 50 years since they planted uh, the first Pinot Noirs for commercial application, and look at how it's grown. I'll never forget that first Pinot Noir festival that I went to. Uh, I discovered that salmon and Pinot Noir were just a combination that was made in heaven. The Indians in that part of the world would take cedar saplings and put it over smoldering coals and uh, skewer a whole side of salmon on that cedar sapling over these coals. Well, you get that smoky cedar taste in the salmon, and I tell you, it goes absolutely perfectly with Pinot Noir. In fact, when, we, when I cook salmon at home on the grill, I very often will soak a cedar plank uh, and put the salmon on the plank over the grill to get that damp cedar flavor as well as that smoke flavor from the coals into the salmon. And boy, I'll tell you, if you had all the money in the world and you wanted to pair a wine with that salmon, you couldn't go wrong pairing a Pinot Noir. Whether that Pinot Noir came from Burgundy or from Oregon, they all seem to go so well together. It really is remarkable. This area... Uh, Is just shown me, you know, the first time I went there it was all fruit stands, etc., and today it's all wineries. And the nice part about visiting Oregon is you aren't going to like Disneyland. Today, if you go to the Napa Valley, all of these fabulous new wineries where they've spent tens and hundreds of millions of dollars building these fabulous operations uh, that you just can't believe for wineries, well, you aren't going to find any of that in Oregon in that Willamette Valley, you'll find little mom-and-pop operations. Most of the wineries uh, produce about 30,000 cases a year, which is nothing. You know, when you stop and think about it, Gallo in uh, uh, Modesto, California, t- produces 22% of the wine that's drunk in this country is Gallo. So you're, when you're buying different wines under different names, and that you're probably buying Gallo wines and don't even really realize that they're that big a player. And, of course, St. Michelle in Washington is another big player. There's a lot of big players. We won't find too many of them in Oregon, although they're starting to get in. Kendall Jackson has purchased some land there, and the St. Michelle Winery Estates has purchased land in Oregon. But for the most part, they're small operations, which means they have a little time to visit with you when you stop and go to them. And the Oregon Wine Trails are just wonderful. And like I say, they're 50 years behind Napa Valley. You won't see these big commercial tasting rooms and that. It's just uh, the winemaker in you, and you might sample the wine. And that's kind of fun. And and there's plenty of good restaurants, but again, you aren't going to have the culinary experience you will in the Napa Valley or Sonoma or things like that because it's much more rustic and... Uh, unchanged as they go forward. The the big commercial stuff hasn't started. There's winery tourism, obviously, in Oregon, but it's about 60% Oregonians or people from the Pacific Northwest and only about 40% people from around the country. And those numbers would be just inverted something fierce in California wine country because California wine country is the largest attraction in California It outdraws Disney uh land and any other uh attraction in California people going there. So it's fun to visit wine country. And uh, believe me, Oregon wine country is very special cuz the the wine you're going to try and and it isn't all Pinot Noir. Mm. They're doing a lot of other varietals, etc. But Pinot Noir in my opinion is the one they really do the best. And Willamette Valley isn't the only place to visit. There's, uh, I think, nine different viticultural areas around Oregon. It's the easiest to get to because you can stay in Portland and a day trip up to wine country in the Willamette Valley in McMinnville. And, And there's hundreds of wineries right in that Willamette Valley to see, so you'd never bored, There's just plenty to do for a nice long weekend. My suggestion, if you ever get out in the Pacific Northwest, go into Oregon, go into Oregon and uh, Portland, and then go on up into uh, the wine country around the Willamette Valley, and McMinnville is the main town there, mm-hmm. and I guarantee you, you're not only going to enjoy it, you may discover some new wonderful wines. I found a wine there the last time I was there Uh, called Wildstock, Mm. and it is absolutely delicious. It's under $20, and it's fabulous. Another one I found was something called Second Growth from Willamette Valley. Again, two Pinot Noirs, both under $20, both delicious wine. uh, fabulous, fabulous discoveries, and a very interesting place to visit. And as I say, today, with the French coming back in droves, as it were, to reinvest in Oregon, mm. there's got to be something there that's really attractive. And the reason it is, is they really can grow fantastic Pinot Noir there. And, and it's wonderful to see. Yeah. Jack Farrell, it is lovely to talk to you. And as always, you can find anything you want and anything you're looking for at Haskell's, right? Indeed. Particularly looking for an interesting wine to pair with any food, stop in and talk to the folks at Haskell. They love to pair wine and food, and they're good at it. They may not be able to prepare the meal, but they can make the meal that special by picking the right wine to go with whatever you're going to fix. And best of all, they'll help you pick a wine that won't break the bank. And believe me, you'll be happy with the results. There's a Haskell's near you where you can save big dollars on wine. Haskell's in Bloomington. There's the Haskell's in Chanhassen. There's the Haskell's in right downtown Excelsior. Faribault, right off at 35 our Maple Grove Supercellar is not to be missed. In Minneapolis, we have free parking on Saturdays at Minnetonka at Ridgedale, Haskell's in Plymouth, St. Paul's Island Village, Stillwater, White Bear Lake, and Woodbury, too. And if you can't come into Haskell's, go to haskells.com or go to wcco.com wine, and it'll take you right to the Haskell website. Very good. It's nice to talk to you, Jack. It's a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. Jack Farrell with us on News Radio 830 WCCO. Haskells, you can always get what you are looking for at Haskells.